listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here this week with my co-host, Marie Mayhew, and joined by Colton Scrivener, a PhD student at the University of Chicago and a fellow at the Institute of Mind and Biology at the University of Chicago. Uh, Mr. Scrivener, Colton, so happy to have you on the show, man. Yeah, thank you all for inviting me. Of course. we. Uh, so, listeners, full disclosure, like we said on the... As we said on the episode last week, we said that the next one would be on time travel and that will happen. And maybe we will be able to travel back into time to put that before this episode. Yeah. However, yeah. Uh, what happened nice was nice. So save, thank Chris. you. So yeah. what happened was Marie was, I guess, doing her normal Google search for death. I don't know what <laughs> I don't know how this happened. Death, but- skulls, horror films. <laughs> no, actually, it, it was. But it was like on my news, um, you know, I on on uh, Apple News, I have a whole tab on like horror films and uh, horror fiction. And I was like, oh, let's just check that out. And this was the first thing that popped up. So you're not far from the truth. Right. So uh, essentially what happened was we found a paper um, by Mr. Scrivener here on the psychology of morbid curiosity. And specifically if, well, specifically the thesis David being does an interest or a feeling of morbid curiosity, a propensity towards morbid curiosity, um, could it, does it have an effect on whether or not, or how you psychologically deal with the COVID-19 crisis? So Marie read the paper, immediately was like, Chris, read this paper. We should talk about this today. Well, to be and fair, as- I read the media coverage of it, which, you know, <laughs> I, I would say, calm. that's first of all, kudos. You guys got picked up a lot on this. And I think a lot of them, kind of probably misinterpreted it and I hope we're not misinterpreting it, but I was just like, wow, this is amazing. Like you're in a lot of different places with this now. Yeah. It it got picked up uh, very quickly uh, and by a lot of different people. And you're right. Some of them did a better job than others reporting uh, what we, what we found and what we, you know, inferred from it. Uh, But that always happens. Yeah, it sure does. So this episode, we are going to talk about morbid curiosity and uh, dig a little bit into those results and just some other cool stuff around there. So, Jake, roll the intro. Tape. First off, um, I just wanted to know, I guess, what what got you interested in this subject? In the first place. Yeah. Um, it, I, you know, I don't know. It, uh, I remember coming in as a first year PhD student thinking, you know, what do I want my uh, sort of topic to be, right? What do I want to be the expert in? Uh, and for some reason, uh, horror came to mind and why people enjoy scary things. And so it sort of started out with me first studying violence and trying to understand why people are interested in violence. Uh, and then it sort of slowly morphed into this larger project uh, on morbid curiosity. So why do people in general sort of sometimes enjoy threatening or dangerous or scary things? Mm. Are you yourself a horror fan? I am. I am. So maybe it's a bit of me search as well. Oh, okay. So just, just so we get it, just so we clear everything up, like what kind of horror, like what is your, what is your particular interest? Since it's a pretty big, as you, you know, go into it's kind of a a wide background that's right yeah um you know i i i sort of enjoy all all the all the subgenres of horror i can think of i pretty much enjoy there aren't any that i just don't like um i don't know if i have a favorite either 
uh, as a kid, I really, I really liked uh, zombie films. Uh, and I, of course, still like those, but a lot of people like those. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. There's not really a, a favorite subgenre. I kind of enjoy uh, the whole range. Hmm. So the paper, the paper that we're talking about today, or the paper that made us really want to talk to you, was this one here titled "Pandemic Practice: Horror Fans and Morbidly Curious Individuals Are More Psychologically Resilient During the COVID-19 Pandemic." So, the way that, the way first off, the way that the media kind of position this generally, and they're the media is really good at positioning and talking about science. Uh, definitely don't have any issues there. So. <laughs> The way that they kind of spoke about this was saying your study found essentially that if you like horror movies, you might be feeling better about the coronavirus situation generally. Um, But the way that we read it or the way that I read it essentially was if you are interested in a specific area of horror films, specifically what you term to be kind of like prepper horror or, uh, you know, kind of stuff like... uh, you know, oh, we, you know, like zombie movies, right? Apocalyptic kind of horror. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That people who enjoyed those and watched those, although they felt, it's it's a hard to parse. What what would you say your results are? I also don't want to feed into the misstaking of what those results were. Right. You know, there were, there were sort of three major results. I mean, there were a lot of different results, but there were three sort of key results. And I think the reason that, uh, it got picked up differently at different places because people focused on one of these three, depending on which outlet it was. Mm. So the first major result, and this is what sort of uh, inspired the study in general was do horror fans broadly uh, experience less or psychological distress or more psychological resilience during the pandemic. So what we found there uh, was that horror people who were fans of horror just broadly uh, did experience less psychological distress. So this is psych- psychological distress is one half of this psychological resilience scale that we have. So there's psychological distress, which if you are low in psychological distress, uh, that's typically better, right? Uh, and if you're high in psychological distress, this means that you experience things like anxiety or feelings of depression or sleeplessness or irritability more often. Um, so, so we found that horror fans experienced less psychological distress during the pandemic. Uh, the second major finding uh, was that people who were fans of uh, prepper genres, so this specific uh, sort of subset of horror movies, also experienced less psychological distress like broad horror fans. But they, in addition to that, they also experienced greater feelings of preparedness, which kind of makes sense, right? If you watch a lot of movies about how to prepare for the end of the world, you're going to be maybe more prepared when... Uh, when the world ends. When the world is potentially ending, that's right. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of the second major finding. Um, and the third major finding was that people who were morbidly curious, so this is like trait morbid curiosity, you can think of it kind of like a personality trait, uh, they experienced greater positive resilience. So this is the other half of that psychological resilience scale. And positive resilience really has more to do with having a positive outlook on the future or being able to enjoy things uh, during a difficult time. So you might still be feeling anxious. You might still be, you know, experiencing the same level of psychological distress as the average person. But uh, during all of that, you're sort of able to keep a positive outlook on things and enjoy your life uh, in the meantime. Did you go back or or were you interested in sort of any of the cultural, like um, how death is viewed and how horror or how sort of how this stuff is... um, 
how it's sort of played out culturally through history? Um, with, so with in, in this particular and, study, yeah. I don't think it would matter as much, yeah. but in my larger project on morbid curiosity, it's something I'm very interested in. Yes. Uh, yes. Obviously, there are aspects, I mean, with death being kind of the center of all of that, death has different mm-hmm. things and is approached differently in different places and across time. And so the way that a particular group of people treats death, whether they sort of treat it at distance or they treat mm-hmm. it as something to be avoided or something to embrace, uh, this could potentially mm-hmm. change the degree to which uh, maybe the average person in that group is morbidly curious or the types of morbid curiosity that they express. So for this course, particular yeah. study, maybe yeah. less so, just because yeah. the, the mechanisms that we're this, populating yeah. are, are... Much more set. For. Yeah. Yeah, but set. with the larger idea of morbid curiosity, I think it definitely has... Uh, a large component that's either influenced by culture or is at least um, sort of the contours are sort of shaped by, by how the culture views death. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's part of like, I, I really enjoyed the the paper on, you know, centering on uh, the pandemic, but like, I, I, I feel like when I went, you know, in my learning and, and sort of my interest, the, the part on uh, morbid curiosity to me was just much more, like there's besides like individuals, like I feel like culturally there's just huge swaths of culture that is that's morbid, you know, it has this really interesting tie yeah. to death. But they're sort of they're sort of morbid though, and I think in different ways, although they all kind of tie back into I think that idea of I you know, I guess I guess for me thinking about First off, like morbid curiosity, you have kind of a very – I think your definition is very similar to kind of like the popular definition of it, which is um, kind of a fascination with things that are uh, – well, actually, related I don't know. To, yeah, yeah, like related to death or related to negative aspects of life or like things that like, you know, violence, death, uh, harm, you know, etc. right? But so – but I wonder though, like would – you know, so conspiracy theory – feels like it would be something that co-occurs with morbid curiosity relatively frequently, at least anecdotally, I would think. And so I wonder, though, if that also doesn't play into or have some aspect of kind of similar underlying cause. So, you know, with conspiracy theory, it's sort of I think a lot of times what people will argue is that conspiracy theory seems to grow out of a feeling of of like lack of control or a, a want for control in the world around people. Um, but also a feeling of like, a, also kind of a feeling just generally of deep helplessness, like that you're not in control of things around you and um, what other people are doing. And so, you know, I, I wonder if that, I guess, I, I guess I kind of wonder what connection there is between sort of things that we would normally consider to be psychologically distressing generally and a feeling of morbid curiosity or a, or an interest in morbid curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I'm, I'm glad you brought up conspiracy theories because this is actually something that I've been wanting to study with, uh, with regard to morbid curiosity, because I do think that there is probably some overlap, uh, for, even for th- theoretical reasons, I think there are probably, uh, is some overlap. So if, if you take the definition that I give for morbid curiosity and sort of the way that I've been approaching it, uh, it's this fascination or motivation to learn about uh, threatening phenomena, right? 
Uh, and if you think about conspiracy theories, there are no positive conspiracy theories. There's no, there's no conspiracy theory that someone is, is out there trying to save the world, right? And if it is, it's a conspiracy theory that someone is trying to stop someone from saving the world, not that someone is trying to save the world, right? So conspiracy theories are sort of inherently about threat. Um, and so I would imagine that the more interested you are in trying to figure out uh, sort of the truth or the, the facts surrounding some conspiracy theory, uh, probably the more morbidly curious you're going to be, uh, because I would assume that the the degree to which you're motivated to learn about threatening information would influence the degree to which you might uh, want to understand a conspiracy theory better or understand what you think is the truth behind a conspiracy theory better. Hmm. It's actually really interesting that you, you know, the I think the one type of conspiracy theory, quote unquote conspiracy theory that maybe listeners even of the show would have immediately thought of when you said this is there's no conspiracy theory that is on its basis positive or on its base level positive. I think right now. So in the kind of UFO world, UFO conspiracy world right now, there's a big group of people who are kind of what a lot of folks call disclosure advocates. So they think that the government coming out and disclosing alien technology will like bring humans together and make the world a better place and all this other kind of stuff. But, but like you said, though, that all of that good stuff happens because the government is coming out and saying aliens are coming to kill us. Right. <laughs> or, or aliens are a threat. Um, so it's kind of fascinating that even in those cases where it's positive, it kind of gets turned on its head, which is, I think, super, super interesting. Um, There's always some sort of, you know, counterforce that's stopping them. And the conspiracy theory is, you know, the, the core of it may seem like it's about the positive thing. And, and it very well could be about the positive aspect. But it's really about, like, how do we stop the bad person from from preventing this good thing from happening, right? Right. The, mm-hmm. Who is mm-hmm. the bad person stopping this good thing from happening? Mm-hmm. There's always a threat implicitly there's always a plot in there's always a there's always a plot there's always a threat implicit in the kind of analysis right um well there's always like a tension between um like forces that are advocating quote unquote life like education um logic order disclosure transparency versus what is considered like what is the threat which is the you know, opposite of that, which ultimately means like the negative or just even death, right? Like there is no order. There's only chaos. You don't have the answer. Um, And if you do have the answer, the answer is probably uh, your own mortality type of thing, right? So I think that there's always like that balance that happens that is sort of at the core of conspiracy, but it's also at the core of like sort of the morbidly curious Right. Right. So one of the I mean, really quickly, one of the cultural things that I thought of after reading your paper was this painting uh, by Holbin from um, this studied in like art history. Our history loves it like cultural studies love it. It's called The Ambassadors. Um, And it's from 19. uh, Oh, my God, 19. Hello. 1533. And it's basically two well-dressed men of the time. Um, one is an ambassador and he's greeting uh, someone else and they're surrounded they're surrounded by all of these sort of artifacts of their time which are globes, books, papers, uh, there's a telescope. 
So all of this sort of cultural um, references to the scientific, you know, to, to scientific learning and education. And then at the forefront of the painting, so it's a full, like it's a full life-size painting. At the forefront of the painting at their feet is a skull. However, the skull, when you're looking at it straight on, the painting straight on, the two men, at their feet is the skull, but the skull has been... Uh, it's almost like a Trump loy. And when you look at it straight on, it looks like a blur. And so you have to literally get down in front of the painting and look up to see that it is this gigantic skull that's sort of been, you know, laid at their feet. And I don't know if like I, you know, for, for viewers or listeners, um, it's called the ambassadors and it's, it's a hugely famous painting, but it's one of those, it's one of those things that again feeds into the idea like really early on of like, you have this uh, this overt fascination with the other side of of logic, of science, of reason, and it's associated with death. But you can't see death straight. You don't want to look at it straight on because it's too. It's almost too overwhelming. So you have to be able to angle to look into it. And again, that's the idea of the curiosity or the the sublimation of it. And it's like it is the almost the physical representation, you know, or I read it as like the, the, the pictorial representation of, of what you're talking about in, in your paper. And it was just really, to me, it's like a fascinating, very like 15th century. So, you know, very early on, even before the first horror movie, they had this sort of um, this way to tune into it. Right. I'll have to look that up. That sounds really interesting. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's a, there's sort of a, uh, almost a whole subfield of study in psychology now called terror management theory that uh, I think sort of tries to uh, explain that phenomenon a bit. So this idea that we sort of do things, particularly in our uh, certain cultural aspects are, are meant to deal with this fear of death, or this threat of death. Um, and I, I won't get too much into it now, but uh, I do think that a lot of the variance in uh, how people respond to death uh, is maybe better explained by morbid curiosity than it is by some of the findings in, in terror management theory. Um, but that, that's maybe for a different time. But uh, basically, I think that, that morbid curiosity has been sort of just underappreciated in, in how much it impacts uh, human behavior broadly. Um, because psychologists have realized for a long time that, and, and anthropologists as well, that uh, death sort of colors our life, right? Like it kind of, it, it, it frames our life. So it, uh, it influences the way that we behave in a lot of different arenas in life. And so the degree to which you're interested in the things that lead to death, that could also influence uh, your behaviors across a wide variety of domains. Um, but in the past, it's really only been looked at as this sort of thing to be avoided with regard to like psychologically to be avoided and not something uh, psychologically to be attracted to. With that, we're going to jump into our first commercial break. I'm Eliza, and I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all, and you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed? Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt, the ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words, 
my story from my perspective, because I know you'll hear other versions, because I want you to have a chance to believe mine, or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing. It also, you know, it kind of strikes me as funny that we're talking about, you know, oh man, you know, everyone's fascinated with death and how does it affect the things we watch and the things we do and everything else. And then in the middle, like smack dab in the middle of that kind of conversation is going to be, you know, the Home Depot has the hot dogs you need for this weekend. You know, like it's a very like I think I, I agree with you. It's a very death. Death colors everything we do. And I think that that is a very um, it's something that I think a lot of people don't sort of consider every day, because frankly, I think for a lot of people. I know myself included, if all I did was think about um, kind of how how quickly time is kind of ticking, um, I'd be just a ball of upsetness eating candy. You know, <laughs> I'd be a philosopher, right? Yeah. Which has just been great. So but the one one thing I guess I wonder with this is so pr- from like the standpoint of the philosophy of science, right? And I'm sure you've considered this before too, but it's a question I think that comes up a lot with these, like making the argument or I guess making the point that um, something derives ultimately from that kind of drive. Like, I think, let me, I'm going to rephrase this part because it's just gobbledygook. Um, So I think that there tends to be sometimes in, the way that the public reads these papers or ideas, there tends to be a kind of a, a case to apply just so stories. And so, yeah. So the idea, so for listeners, I mean, we've, we've mentioned this now in the show so many times that it's like basically a tagline of the show, but the, the idea here is that, you know, um, say, you know, we all have a biological drive for procreation and then using that biological fact to, to, to then make arguments for all kinds of, psychological or social things that we do. So like, you know, the only reason guys play guitar is because it's going to help them get laid and that's a biological drive. And so that's why we, you know, those kinds of like silly, um, way overblown arguments for stuff. I wonder that connection then, I guess I would wonder how do you respond to the, maybe the critique or the idea that some of this feels very just so E right? Like that, um, death, our drive to not die or whatever, um, our drive to continue existing and reproducing and continuing the species. Um, is that kind of directly correlating to some of the psychological things or sociological things you're looking at? Or is that, is it, I'm sure it's more complicated, but can you explain how it's more complicated? Yeah, of course. Uh, no, that's a perfectly valid question. I think in, and maybe this is wrong, but outside of uh, science, people often like to have one answer for something. Uh, there, there's, and it's typically approximate answer, right? What causes uh, Y, you know, how does X cause Y, yes or no? And if X causes Y, then something else probably doesn't cause Y. Uh, in science, however, or at least in my subfield of, of behavioral biology, uh, there's sort of this idea that there are four levels of explanation. So one level of explanation is the proximate level. And so this would be sort of the most immediate 
answer to why people do things. Well, why do people watch scary movies? Because they're fun. That's a, that's a proximate answer. And there could be several proximate answers, right? Another proximate answer could be uh, because they get an adrenaline rush, right? Uh, so it's sort of whatever is the most immediate explanation or explanations for the phenomenon. There's also uh, a developmental or ontogenetic uh, explanation. So this is how does this behavior change over time, right? Uh, so do kids, uh, are they more interested in scary stuff than adults? Do people become more or less interested as they age? Um, things like that. There's also uh, a phylogenetic uh, or ultimate sort of explanation. So this is uh, things like, does this exist in other species? So do chimps uh, find you know, dead things interesting? Do they find anything that's threatening interesting or are they only afraid of it? So what can we say about it based on what other animals, particularly animals that might be closely related to us genetically um, or evolutionarily, like how do, how do they respond to these kinds of things? And then there's also a functional level of analysis, which is in part what this study was. Uh, and the functional level analysis asks, what does this behavior do? Because a lot of behaviors, uh, I mean, if, if you take evolutionary theory sort of seriously, not all behaviors, but a lot of behaviors, especially ones that don't make a lot of sense, uh, probably have um, a reason that they evolved, right? Or a reason that they exist. Um, I know why questions are sort of taboo in science sometimes, but uh, with evolution, there is, there is an, at least uh, a why question to be answered, right? Why does this animal do this? Mm -hmm. um, and that's another ultimate level explanation, right? It's, it answers maybe, it can answer what does this func what does this uh, behavior do for us in the in the current time, uh, but also why did it evolve in the first place? And so, with morbid curiosity, the the idea is that you can't um, you can't just avoid death. That's a little broad, right? I mean, that's ultimately what organisms do, right? Because they need to survive <laughs> and reproduce. Um, but with having death as a target is a little broad. And so, that was my first critique when I start first started studying morbid curiosity was that you can't just have a, a sort of behavior that avoids death uh, because mm -hmm. that would be too broad. And so instead I started thinking, okay, how would you avoid death? Well, you might want to avoid things that are dangerous, right? That's still a little broad. And so it kind of ended up getting split into these four subcategories that I've identified in morbid curiosity. Um, and the idea behind it is that in order to uh, learn how to avoid dangerous things, you have to know something about the dangerous thing, right? If I don't know how you know, dangerous people behave, it's difficult for me to identify them and avoid them. Right? Mm. Um, so the, the critique that this is a just-so story is, a, is at least a, a valid worry. Um, what, I'm, what I'm not doing is trying to say that this is the only reason more people are morbidly curious um, or the only reason that people like horror movies. There are lots of reasons you could like horror movies. And some of them can be explained at different levels, right? You might like horror mm. movies because you grew up watching them and they remind you of your childhood. You might like horror movies because your friends like them. Uh, but what I'm trying to explain is why humans as a species uh, like scary things or like violent things or like things that are unpleasant or seem to be unpleasant. Because at least on its face, it doesn't make a lot of sense for people to pay money to be afraid. Mm. So that's, that's what got me started down this line of research is this sort of, mm -hmm. this sort of paradox, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, why do people, why do people essentially, uh, pay a price to be negatively affected, right? Your answer was super good. The one critique I have of it is that, um, Colton, I have no friends. <laughs> my friends liking horror movies has nothing to do with it. The Shit. other thing, the other thing I kept thinking when, when you were mentioning 
like you said, you know, do chimps av- do chimps go first off? Do chimps are chimps morbidly curious? But the other question I had on top of that was when you're testing when you're like with another species, like when you said, do chimps look for things that are dangerous or do they, do they interact with those things that are dangerous sometimes in a way that maybe is more you know, outside of like, they need to cross a river to get food or something, but more like they play in it. The first thing I thought was um, a monkey in a parachute or like a chimp in a parachute, I guess I should say <laughs> like, it wasn't, wasn't exactly very scientific, but I, I do wonder like, so do oh, no give yourself credit, Chris. That's not scientific in the least. I know, so good. You know, a monkey on a skateboard, <laughs> like man, that guy is so cool. Do oh, do chimps or do we see morbid curiosity in animals? Um, this is something that I don't know enough about to make a strong claim. Okay, uh, but it partially because I don't think there's much information because not only I mean people have not only uh, or rather scientists have not only looked. Uh, not looked at whether or not people are interested in, in death or threatening things. They've certainly not looked at whether or not other animals. Sure. Really? But it's fascinating that they haven't looked at like people though, too. Well, there are, there are some studies uh, that are sort of observational and, and, and opportunistic where, you know, let's say uh, a member of a, of a troop of a chimp troop dies. Um, how do the other chimps deal with that? What do they do? Do they mm-hmm. avoid it? Do they bury it? Do they freak out? You know, do they investigate it? And what's interesting is there seem to be some individual differences in the way that they approach it. So some chimps are very curious and go up and kind of poke it um, and, and do these other, you know, try to manipulate it. And it's not clear that this is curiosity per se, or that it's the same uh, mechanisms uh, or, or motivations for, for doing mm-hmm. this. Um, but certainly the behavior is similar, right? The motivation could be different. Um, and that's something that needs to be studied more. Um, but the behaviors in some ways are, are similar to what humans do so that if they you know, if, if some chimps go up and kind of poke it or mess with it, it could be a sign of grief and that they're sad. You know, it's difficult. It's, we have to try to not anthropomorphize them, right? Try not to, mm-hmm. uh, that was me, what would I be doing? Because it's a chimp, it's not you. Right. But if you can sort of try to describe just the behavior, right? Sort of like a, an ethologist would. Um, and then if you can get enough, a collection of these uh, descriptions, uh, you might be able to compare it to the ways that humans act or react to death or other threatening or dangerous. Well, it reminds me of the saying, it reminds me of the saying, you know, curiosity killed the cat. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, but Marie, sorry, you had a question. Well, no, cause I'm, I think one of the main differences that would come to my mind is that, that humans are aware of their own mortality, right? So it's, yeah. the, it's the inevitability of death. It's not the immediate threat of death. That's right. It's the inevitability of it. And I think that that's something that animals are not, in my in my guess, and a guy could be wrong, are not aware of. They're not aware of the fact that they, as the individual, won't be around forever. But people, and that's that's sort of the overarching, I would guess the overarching sort of psychology in it is it's not the it's not the um the horror film necessarily, but it's the sharp like scare jump. It's the long-term um kind of realization and how does how do people how do people kind of come to come to peace or come to some sort of impasse with that realization is my, is my guess. Cause I mean, again, like if you look at like culturally the memento mori, right. Which is inevitably, inevitably you will die. You know, that's cultural phenomenon throughout Victorians. And even, even going back to like, again, the, the idea of the skull 
um, in the in the whole um, in the ambassadors, in the Gothic movement, and just sort of this this um, almost the flip side of romanticizing the death, romanticizing the idea of the death and the idea of horror, almost becomes an over exaggeration of that. But it's like that that to me is fascinating study and just sort of the art and the cultural how people express that is so interesting as well on an outward expression, which is like horror movies. Yeah. There's certainly a human dimension that other animals simply don't, or or maybe even can't have because they don't have symbolic language. Right. So Mm -hmm. uh, humans, you know, can sort of think about the future and simulate possible scenarios in the future that could be threatening or dangerous, including their own death. Right. And other animals presumably don't do that. Um, But I do think that there can be some, um, sort of more basic uh, ways that humans share uh, an interest. I don't even know if I'd call it an interest, maybe a motivation to learn about or practice things uh, without thinking about them. So for example, uh, if you take rough and tumble play, humans and and lots of other animals, you know, if you have a dog or a cat, uh, you've probably seen this, but uh, humans and lots of other animals engage in what's called rough and tumble play. And so in humans, this turns into things like hide and seek or tag uh, or just kind of wrestling around, right? Um, other animals also do this. So if you have dogs, dogs will kind of growl and seem very mean. But at the same time, they'll wag their tails to kind of give clues that it's not really a fight. They're just play fighting, right? Um, so in the literature, it's sometimes called rough and tumble play. Sometimes they'll play fighting kind of depending on the scenario. Um, and so that's one example where uh, you might be one explanation for why the dog does it, well, it feels good when it does it, right? It's fun. Um, same, re- same reason that the kid plays tag. It's fun, right? And they're bonding with their friends. Um, but there's been a lot of interesting studies showing that uh, the way that particular species engage in rough and tumble play actually have uh, very similar, they, they, they practice very similar motor skills uh, that will be used in their later life. So for things like actually catching prey or running from predators or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there could be some similarities there with, and this is kind of the approach we took in the pandemic paper was that when people are watching these movies, uh, they're sort of simulating or practicing, hence the, the title, right? They're sort of practicing what, what would happen if there was some, if something like this were to occur, right? What would happen if there was, you know, some virus that shut down the world? Um, and they're not doing, they're not going into that with the intention for the same reason that a dog doesn't play fight with his brother, you know, so that he can learn how to kill things later in life. He's doing it because probably there's some basic uh, hormonal changes that make it feel rewarding, right? There's some dopamine spikes that make it feel rewarding when you do that. Um, but the sort of ultimate explanation uh, or the functional explanation for why this occurs could be that uh, it helps the dog practice and fine tune motor skills that it can use later in life, right? That's why this behavior uh, occurs. Um, so for the same reason, it could be the case that people are interested in sort of scary or dangerous things because it could serve them well later in life. That may not be the explanation for why they do it in t- uh, at the time, and that's certainly not the explanation they would give you if they told you why they were doing it. Uh, but that's a different kind of ex- explanation from why does this behavior exist. It's funny. You actually just answered a question I was going to ask, which was could this be just simple Pavlovian conditioning? Right. Or, you know, of of because that's I think that's often given for. I think in a lot of other in a lot of morbidly cur- or in a lot of media that kind of plays off of morbid curiosity, frankly, stuff like, you know, serial killer stories or whatever. Um, 
that's often given as kind of like a lazy, you know, answer, right? Like, why does the serial killer do it? Because he's got to because his brain says he's got, you know, and it's like, OK, that's fine. But like, but why? You know, like, why does his brain say he's got to like what People are more interested in the proximate answers? Right. Because that's that's how they experience it's how you experience life. You experience life and, and with proximate mechanisms. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's fun or because whatever, you know, because I'm why do I eat this food? Because I'm hungry. Well, you also eat the food because your body runs on calories, but that's not what you're thinking. Right. <laughs> right. And that the functional explanation for why you eat food is because your cells need energy. Right. Yeah. And that, and that's what I wonder, though, with like if you. I guess I'm wondering, even though that simple thing, that simple like dopamine rush example um, or that feeling of like, you know, you have adrenaline and then the adrenaline goes away and you feel good afterwards. um, I'm wondering if that in animals is and this is, again, kind of like outside of your wheelhouse generally. Right. It sounds like. But that that idea of like if thinking about how would you test this if you could, I'm wondering if like like people that skydive, right, like there's not or even not even skydiving, like people that go to war, right. Um, have all kinds of reasons for doing it, but they are constantly, um, putting themselves in harm's way. Like that to me seems like kind of an offshoot of this morbid curiosity in some ways. And I wonder like in animals, similar kind of things, right? Like, like stuff over like fights for territory or whatever. Um, that although in some cases might be, you know, important, or that might be a, a reason for doing something. I'm thinking about things like, you know, chimpanzees who they're, they're kind of groups go to war with each other and seem to do things that are unnecessarily violent. Right. Um, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting, an interesting thing or an interesting offshoot. And like, it sounds to me like we need at least another seven episodes with each other <laughs> to really get to the bottom of all of this. But so before, before we end though, right? Like, one question that we immediately had reading your paper, and I think the reason we had this question, and Marie, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but it's because Marie is extremely violent. <laughs> um, just in person. No, I'm just extremely in, morbid, no. but what else? Well, um, it's all good. But, no. like, one question we had, and may- maybe, Marie, you can kind of put this in a better way than I can, but essentially, like, your paper seems to suggest that people do some of these morbidly curious things. They put themselves in these situations because it makes them more capable of, you know, there's like you said, like a proximal and a functional cause and all these other things, but mm-hmm. in some way it kind of like prepares them for that eventuality happening. Um. So what about, what about video games, like violent video yeah. games? Right. Yeah. And so Marie, do you want to kind of expand on that a bit oh, more? Well, I, like, think, I think that that's, but that's sort of the, the argument, the reverse argument, right? Is that the violent video games inspired, trench coat mafia that was the original shooting in, you know, in Colorado and sort of how, so if it works one way, why, why does it not work the other way? Yeah, that, no, that's, that's a fair question. Um, so maybe two things I'll say about that for three, really. The first, the first is that I don't want to speak too authoritatively on video games and violence, because even though I, I study violence and interest in it, uh, the, the literature on video games and violence is not only, bigger than any, any other literature I've ever seen. It's also massively contradictory. Uh, <laughs> so there's 10 years of studies saying, you know, it does this, and there's 10, year, 10 more years of studies saying it doesn't do this. Uh, the most up-to-date sort of reviews and meta-analyses that I've read suggest that if there is an effect of, if there is a relationship between violent video games and aggression, like real-world aggression, it seems to be 
in the most extreme cases, meaning the people who are uh, most aggressive, right? So the, the relationship is strongest mm -hmm. between people who are most aggressive and play video games. Um, of course, that doesn't tell you anything about causation, right? It could be, in, a, right. in my opinion, probably is the case that more aggressive people play the video games uh, is, a, is a more parsimonious explanation to me than... Um, but they find it out versus it makes them... That's right. Yeah, they're doing it to play act that fascination before they can get yeah. the, the hands on something really violent. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, and you know, in that way, it is similar, right? They could be... Right. Uh, it, it, their, their approximate uh, explanation for their behavior could be, I'm practicing this, right? Mm. The second thing I would say is that uh, at least, and I, I don't know if this is actually published yet. It's, it's one of the studies I've got, I'm working on, but it seems to be the case that people who are morbidly curious, for example, aren't less afraid of the dangerous things that they're interested in. Um, so they're not, they're not less afraid of the serial killer or the ghost or the, uh, the violence or whatever. They're just more interested in it, right? There's always these sort of two mm. forces that, that interact with each other. There's this push and pull, like uh, it's, it's just a cost-benefit trade-off, right? So what are the benefits of me learning about this? And are they higher than the costs of me exposing myself to this? And so just because someone is interested in something doesn't mean that they want to do that thing or enact that thing. Um, so I can read about or learn about all sorts of crazy things, uh, but it doesn't mean I want to do this, those things. I just want to know about them, right? It's an epistemic curiosity. Right. Interesting. Yeah. But my suggestion would be that um, people who play violent video games, there, there may be lots of proximate explanations for why you play Call of Duty, right? Well, because it's fun, because I'm bored, because I can play with my friends. There's some ultimate explanations, probably. Uh, so with, with men in particular, it uh, sort of is this coalition or alliance building kind of thing. Team is... Mm -hmm. uh, sort of team competition um, that not, not just men experience, but men do experience it a, to a greater degree anyway, or at least report greater satisfaction from it. And, and this occurs, you know, kind of across the animal kingdom and to some extent. Um, but if you think about it, like of all the kinds of video games you can play, you don't just go out and do the things that you do in your video games. Um, I think a better explanation for this is that people are just curious about how these things work, right? If I'm not violent, I'm not going to know how violence works. So one way that I learn how violence works is I play it on a video game. But that's not necessarily going to make me more violent, right? Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. it's kind of, yeah, it yeah. seems it seems similar to like if we look at the prepper genre of movies, right? It's sort of like you can watch all those movies and then maybe psychologically feel or even respond in a survey that you would be more psychologically prepared for that kind of thing. But it doesn't mean that if the world actually ended, you'd be any more useful than a random person off the street. <laughs> right. right. Like, you you know, just because you think you do better in a zombie apocalypse doesn't mean you wouldn't be, would, you know, zombie food within that the you day. Would be. Just like yeah. watching comedy movies probably doesn't make you funnier. Right. Or right. Romance right. Movies oh, no, oh, nice. Yes. nice no, that's fine. I see how it. I Yeah, that's great. No, yeah, no, no. Yeah. I, I think. Yeah, I think there's definitely. It is interesting that the. It would be oh, great man. if it was that easy, right? If we could just watch things yeah. and, and then osmosis for yeah. us to do them and, and be better at them. Um, and, and it may be the case in some scenarios, right? Like with the prepper genre thing, there may be certain reasons why that helps people prepare. The most obvious one that probably anybody could, you know, look at this and go, well, duh, is because they've seen it before, right? What happens when, if, you know, if you have a good simulation, then, the, then you're going to know what to do when the real thing occurs, at least better than someone who hasn't had a real simulation or a good simulation. And honestly, I think that's actually a much bigger part of it, too, as it's the quality. Like, there are some video games 
that are like I, I I play video games all the time, you know. And although Marie and I joke about playing Animal Crossing constantly, um, it's I play a lot of Call of Duty. I do play a lot of Call of Duty, right? And and I've played a lot of it in a lot of those kinds of games for my entire life. But there are even parts of like Call of Duty, you know, there famously there was a a part of I think it was Call of Duty Four where you started off the game playing as a a terrorist who goes into an airport and mows down people just waiting for planes. Right. And that part of the game was even like too much for me as like a high schooler to do. I was like, that part was really weird and like gross. Yeah. You know? And I, so I wonder if it's not also like the almost something akin to the uncanny Valley where it's like, if you're just in GTA, you know, hitting people with your car and having a great time and whatever. Um, and it's just like, it's just fun and it doesn't seem real and it's whatever. That's a lot different than playing a game where you're like in the driver's seat and feel the thud of a person and then they scream and then you, you know what I mean? Like there, yeah. there is so much gap between simulation and reality yeah, there's with a proximity violence to it, yeah. that it's, yeah. I think if, if it was closer to what it really was like, I don't think most people would like it or want to do it. Well, there is, yeah. Yeah, I think that goes back to this idea that it's really not about wanting to learn how to do this thing. That's that's not, you know, even the right. population is not learn, wanting to learn how to do it, but just wanting to learn about it because it's yeah. something that you see in the world, right? So one interesting study could be to see, do people in more violent zip codes watch more violent movies or watch them more often or play more violent video games? So mm. it could just help you sort of prepare for the world that's like around you, right? And so one uh, interesting sort of... Uh, other, another thing that sort of happened like that was that when uh, coronavirus sort of got big in March in the U.S., people started watching Contagion a lot, right? It's not because they wanted coronavirus to come or they wanted to, you know, it's because they probably because uh, there was a salient threat of a pathogen. And so what do you do? Well, maybe I'll watch Contagion, right? Mm-hmm. And their, their approximate reason for doing that may not be so that I can learn about it. Um, but the one ultimate reason may be, oh, well, if a threat is present then the the cost doesn't go down of exposing yourself to the threat to learn about it, but the benefit of knowing about the threat goes up significantly, right? And so it sort of tilts that cost-benefit ratio such that it makes sense to gather information about uh, whatever the thing is that's threatening because it's going to be around for a while, right? Well, and even, even to the more morbid side of it, it could get worse. could be worse. could get worse, yeah. Could be a lot yeah. worse. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, uh, it is. Man, thank you so much for joining us today and taking time out of your your busy schedule to just come on and speak with me and Marie about all the video games and stuff we like to play. This should this should uh, finally put a this should finally put a sock in our moms, which is great. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, mom, it's normal yeah, that I like skulls. Totally yeah. fine. Makes us more ready potentially, but kind of sort of in this one study that sort of chose. No, yeah. <laughs> um, it's fascinating though. Everyone, this episode, uh, we were joined by Colton Scrivener, again, a PhD student at the University of Chicago and fellow at the Institute of Mind and Biology at the University of Chicago. Um, Colton, thanks so much for coming on. Anything you want listeners to check out? Um, I mean, I'm sure it, just based on the interest and the the amount of and quality of the studies you're putting out there already, just from a layman's perspective, I'm sure someday we will be having you on the show as Dr. Scrivener. Um, so good luck with your studies and everything else. But anything you want folks to um, to, to see, any, if they want to learn more, yeah, where should they go? How do they, they get a hold of you? Yeah. yeah. They want to follow you. 
sure. So you can, uh, my website is just my, my name.com. So Colton Scrivener, uh, com. And there's lots of information about other projects uh, I'm working on that people may be interested in if they're interested in this. So I have a sort of field site at a haunted house uh, that um, I do some research at. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, episode two <laughs> coming soon. It's got to happen. No. It's happening now. It's, it's got to happen. So there's it's lots just, of stuff on there uh, that people could look at to see if they're, if they're more interested uh, in this type of research. So cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And dear listeners, we will be back uh, shortly with another episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mad Scientist Pod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Yes, we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.